This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 76, the Cambria. The the words of understanding stated in the book called Sivat Rivash, though in fact it is not at all his will or testament, he did not ordain anything before his passing, they, the teachings, are merely gleanings of his pure sayings. The adjective recalled, pure recalls a phrase in the morning blessings that describes the pristine purity of a soul before it descends from the world of Atzlut, likewise a verse as pure as the very heavens, that were gathered as compilations after compilations, and the compilers did not know how to phrase his teachings exactly. For the Baal Shem Tov used to speak in Yiddish, and the teachings of Tzavar HaRivash are recorded in Hebrew. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, and all future Hasidic leaders, all until the Rebbe, including the Rebbe, spoke in Yiddish. That was their language. That's right. They're, they spoke in Yiddish, they taught in Yiddish, the Hasidic discourses were all in Yiddish. In that sense, Yiddish is a very holy language. In a certain sense, even more than Aramaic. Because Yiddish, that we name the language, Yiddish is really old German, but we name the language Yiddish, that this became the Jewish language. Because it's soaked with the Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, the uh, the Jews kept the Yiddishkeit, even in the shtetl and even under those trying circumstances. This is what kept them. This is an expression. The Yiddish language is an expression of that Jewish pride and that very deep Jewish connection that we have with Hashem, specifically in the times of darkness. You know, it's one thing we spoke Hebrew. When godliness was revealed and open, so we spoke Hebrew. That was our language. Then we we started in exile. The first in the exile went into exile. So we developed the Babylonian Talmud, Aramaic. That became the language of the Talmud, um, which was close to Hebrew. Aramaic is a cousin of Hebrew. But then Yiddish. We were deep into the exile, Eastern Europe. And we adopted, this became our language, the Yiddish language. And the Jews still remained faithful and connected. And our Yiddish guide was so alive that we were able to persevere even in that darkness. So this language is soaked with Jewish pride. It's, it's just drenched with Jewish pride. And our marriage and relationship with Hashem. And so it's a, in a way, it's a very special language. This is the language that Baal Shem Tov spoke in, and Rabbi Dover, and all the Hasidic rabbis spoke Yiddish. This is the language of the Jewish people in the last few hundred years. The centers of Jewish life 
this is what preserved the Yiddishkeit. This is what preserved, you know, the Jewish people are distinguished by their language. This became their language so much so we named it Yiddish. This is what distinguished us. We are a Jewish people. We have our language. We have our culture. We're a culture apart. We're a nation apart. We, and then, in those days, they really had no choice but to be apart. In the shtetl, they really had no choice. It was either Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. But today, we choose to live apart. We could easily assimilate, and yet we make the choice to be apart, to be a nation apart, to live as Jews, to conduct ourselves as Jews, to behave as Jews, to follow the Torah. So this, this uh, dynamic and this uh, approach is really Yiddish. We pride ourselves in speaking our own language and having our own language and speaking in our own culture and our uniqueness and our unique culture and we take pride. So in a sense, the Yiddish language expresses Jewish pride like no other language. So much so we named it Yiddish and the fact that the Baal Shem spoke Yiddish. And who knows? We'll find out. A good chance Mashiach will speak Yiddish. So <laughs> uh, that may be the language. Mashiach comes, we may all learn Yiddish because that's going to be the language Mashiach is going to speak in. So there's something very, very holy about this language. That's what I wanted to know. Uh, you know how do we relate to Yiddish nowadays? I mean, uh, we've got the Hebrew. So I'm saying Yiddish is a very, very holy language. Don't forget, the Hebrew that's used today is, is, is very, very little Hebrew. It's, it's so much more adopted from every language. You look into a modern Hebrew dictionary, it's, it's, it's half of the words are not Hebrew because you have to create a whole, new, a whole new language. But I'm talking about Hebrew as a holy language. Right? Hebrew was the spoken word, the Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and the Jewish people were on a very, very high spiritual level, godly level. So that was their, their so main So you language. think in terms of the time of Mashiach, Yiddish will prevail? We'll find out. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a prophet. But we'll find out. If Mashiach speaks Yiddish, I have, a, I have a suspicion that everyone will learn Yiddish to understand. Of course, we're all going to study in Hebrew and uh, we're going to learn of the Torahs in Hebrew. But all the languages that we brought with us, the Talmud will still be in Aramaic. Talmud is in, Aram- a lot is in Aramaic. You know, we've adopted Aramaic. That became the language of the oral Torah. Uh, Yiddish became, was the language of our language, you know, the, the last few hundred years of Jewish life that led to and will bring Mashiach. So, so Yiddish is a very holy language. But the Baal Tov spoke in, in Yiddish, but everything was written in Hebrew. So when they wrote his sayings, they wrote it in Hebrew. So it wasn't an exact art. It wasn't an exact translation. It could be that it wasn't so accurate. The translation wasn't so accurate because he said one thing in Yiddish, and uh, the Hebrew translation, you know, when you translate one language to another language, things get lost in the translation. So it's very possible that he was true to the, the, the writer. The Baal Tov himself didn't write anything. He spoke. His students wrote. Everything we have from the Baal Tov was written by his students. We have very few writings of the Baal Tov. We have letters from the Baal Tov, a few letters. We have the famous letter when he encountered Mashiach and Rosh Hashanah. Um, when he encountered the soul of 
of Mashiach in um, 1746. He encountered the soul of Mashiach, and he told him, when is Mashiach going to come? He asked him, and, and he went up to heaven, and he had told him, when your wellsprings will be spread throughout the whole world. So that's a letter that we have of the Baal Shemtov himself. And then we have a whole bunch of letters, um, which the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe and the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, previous Rebbe, verified as authentic, and that's the Baal letters. But other than that, the teachings of the Baal Shemtov did not write any of his teachings, or we don't have any of those writings, teachings that he taught, his students then recorded and wrote down his teachings. So even though they, they named it, there's Kesar Shemta, it's a famous book, and told us Yaakov Yosef, his senior student who wrote down, his whole book is based on the teachings of the Baal Shemta, and uh, his students in their books quoted the Baal Shemta, wrote down the teachings of the Baal Shemta, and one of these books was called the will and testament of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov never wrote the last will and testament, but he gave it a name, and these are like short, cryptic sayings that the Baal Shem Tov says. Very powerful. Each one of them is powerful. You know, even with your eyes closed, you can read something, and you know right away who the author is. This is the Baal Shem Tov because it's a bombshell, it's novel, it's revolutionary. It's 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 just incredible. Every word of the Baal Shem Tov is like. Uh, you can see that this must be, only the Baal Shem Tov could say something so profound and so powerful. It's very cryptic statements, Tzavos Arivar. And uh, one of these statements created tremendous controversy amongst the opposition, the, the establishment. And this is what Alter Rebbe is addressing in this letter. So he said the Baal Shem Tov spoke in Yiddish, and the student who wrote this down and published the book translated and this appears to be in a way it was loosely translated and therefore inaccurately translated. But the gist of what he's transmitting is true. The Baal did say it but the wording that he used is, was a little not 100%. Was not, and that he's going to explain and clarify. The connotation, however, of the teachings is absolutely true. The Alter Rebbe now begins to explain the statement in Sabbath Mavarash now he's going to explain without even he didn't even doesn't even quote the statement of the Bashamta till the end of the letter. He definitely does not quote the opposition, the critique. He doesn't want to he doesn't even want to entertain that, but he, he wants to address it. So he goes straight to an introduction, a long, lengthy introduction that will clarify and explain what the Baal Shem Tov said. This will be understood by first considering the teachings of our sages of blessed memory. Whoever this, is in a rage resembles an idolater. This is actually in the Zohar. And Maimonides quotes it. And the source for this is the Zohar. So obviously Maimonides must have known the Zohar, read the Zohar, and must have known all the Kabbalistic works. Uh, there were many Kabbalistic works that were famous in his day and age, and surely he was knowledgeable of all those Kabbalistic works. But it appears he even had access to the Zohar, because there are many things in the Maimonides which the only source for it is the Zohar. It's almost like word for word from the Zohar. So he quotes the Zohar that says, whoever, whoever loses his temper, it's the equivalent of idolatry. And the question is, what's the connection? I mean, the rabbis are not into uh, hyperbole. They're not, they're not just trying to exaggerate, to make a point. You know, it's, it has to be accurate. What's the connection? I lose my temper. Okay, we know. We discussed it already. Losing a temper is a terrible thing. And, 
you lose control and it's, it's destructive and nothing good comes out of it and it's harmful and now we all understand that but what's the connection to idolatry losing your temper is bad enough <laughs> even if it has nothing to do with idolatry well, what, what's the connection I'm losing my tempers I'm worshipping idols many very pious religious Jews are very bad tempers they don't worship idols and they worship God and they're very pious and very religious but they have terrible tempers so what does, what does what do you mean? I lose my temper I'm worshipping idols Mahakesha what's the connection the reason for this is clear to those who know understanding because at the time of his anger Faith in Hashem and in his individual divine providence has left him. For were he to believe that what happened to him was Hashem's doing, he would not be angry at all. Why are you angry? You're angry at that person. How dare that person harm me or did something to me? Wait a minute. That person harmed me? That person did something to me? Who is that person? Is God running this world or is God running this world? You believe in God, you don't believe in God. You have faith, you don't have faith. Just like the soul. God is the soul of the world. When the body makes the slightest movement, who is moving? It's 100%. It's the soul. The body is nothing. The body is a corpse. The body can't make any movement. Any movement in the body is the soul. I have never seen my soul. I've never heard my soul. But the soul is the energy and the life force that's moving the body. So too, from the microcosm, I can extrapolate. The same is true with the macrocosm. God is the soul of the world. Anything that happens in this world is God. God is running this world. God is in control of this world. Nothing happens in this world. You don't earn a dime unless Hashem wants you to earn that penny. Nothing. There's the slightest movement, the slightest accomplishment, achievement. Nothing happens in this world unless Hashem wants it to happen. Period. It's not that God created the world and then He left the world and its own devices and once in a while he mixes in to show that he's boss and he, he could perform miracles as Lahavdil the Christians believe. No. Jewish belief and Jewish faith is God is one. God is in charge. God is in control. The world of nature, everything is God. There's no other reality but God. God runs this world. Nothing happens in this world without Hashem, period. So who am I getting angry at? That person. He is God. I'm making him into God. He has the power to hurt me. So it means God shares power with this individual. God runs most of the world, but he has the power to hurt me. Anyone who believes that another human being has the power to hurt me is an idolater. That means you're denying the power of God. You're denying that God runs this world. Nothing happens in this world without the express will and wish of Hashem. So if something bad happens to me, I'm hurt, insulted, inconvenienced, slighted, whatever, that person, I'm attributing that to that person, I'm getting angry at that person, who is that person? I don't exist. He doesn't exist. Well, who's that person? All there is is God. If God would not want that this should happen to me, there's no force in the universe that can impose it upon It's because Hashem decreed, it was decreed in heaven that this inconvenience should happen to me. And that's the only reason why I was inconvenienced. 
nothing to do with that person. Who is that person? He's a nobody with all due respect. He's an absolute zero. So I'm getting angry at him. How dare you said this to me? How dare you did this to me? He did this? He said this? Who is he? You don't exist. He doesn't exist. Who is he? He has power. He has force. He's God. You're attributing, you're turning him into a God. That he has a power. He has an independent power to do things. That's idolatry. The rabbis are not exaggerating. This is not uh, hyper, hyperbole. This is, this is reality. Whoever loses his temper, because I'm angry at that person for hurting me, for harming me, for saying something, for slighting me, whatever it is, I get angry. How dare you? Are you turning him into a god? He has the power to hurt you? He had the power to insult you? He had the power to inconvenience you? I thought God is running this world. So anything negative that happens, it's because it was decreed in heaven that this negativity is going to happen. Hurry. It's between me and God. Take it up with God. (laughs) You don't like it? It's a godly message. God is giving you a message. Don't take it out on that person. Who is he? Nobody. You're turning him into somebody. You're making him into a power. You're making him into a God. He has the power to hurt you. This is literally idolatry. The rabbi is not exaggerating. If you lose your temper, you are an idolater. Because that's what you are. You're empowering the other person when the other person doesn't have that power. And this is a very fundamental principle that he states it with such simplicity. Factual. Nobody has the power to hurt another human being. We don't have the freedom of choice to hurt another human being. We don't have the freedom of choice to lift a pinky against another human being. We don't have the freedom of choice to inconvenience another human being. Unless it was decreed in heaven that this is God's wish, that this person should be inconvenienced, that this person should be hurt, that this person... You don't have the freedom of choice. Your freedom of choice is limited to yourself, not to the extent of affecting another person. If it was not decreed in heaven that this person should be hurt, you don't have that power. And he states it as a fact. He doesn't even back it up. He's not stating it as a a novel, revolutionary statement. It's a simple fact. This is what the Talmud means. If you lose your temper, that is the source. Very simple. If you lose your temper, you're worshipping idols because you're empowering the other person. You're angry at that person for hurting you. As if he had any power to hurt. Which he doesn't. It's only Hashem. So instead of dealing with Hashem, it's a wake-up call from Hashem. Hashem is displeased. Hashem is waking you up. Instead, I pour my wrath on that person. I give him control. I empower him. I turn him into a god. He's a nothing. And I turn him into a god. And I lose my temper. You're worshipping an idol. You're bowing down to that person. (laughs) You turned him into a god. You're worshipping. The one you're getting angry, that's your god. (laughs) Foolish. Very silly. 
think you're getting even. I'm going to show him. I'm going to lose my temper. I'm going to yell at him. You turn, all you've done is you've turned him into a god, a deity. You're bowing down to him. You're worshipping him. Your anger is worshipping him. Before, he was a nothing and a nobody. And all of a sudden, you turned him into a deity. With your anger, you're turning him into a deity, into an entity, into something real. Power. With power to decide, to inflict damage, to hurt another person, to do anything. Really? He has the power? He had the power to hurt you? Who is he? God is running this. So you turned him into a deity. Mazel. That, that wasn't your intent. When you lost your temper, you weren't intending to worship him. But that's exactly what you did. You turned him into a god and you worshipped him. In anger. So you should strike down idols. <laughs> don't turn him into an idol so you don't I have to strike him. <laughs> you strike yourself. You're the idolater. But the question is, this poses a very powerful question. Wait a minute. Wait a second. How, does this, how do you reconcile this with freedom of choice? You're telling me that he doesn't have the power to hurt me. It was decreed in heaven. So if this is Hashem's wish and Hashem's will that I should be inconvenienced, I should be insulted, I should be hurt and harmed, maybe I should give the guy a mazel tov. Maybe he's doing God's wish. He's doing a mitzvah. He's fulfilling God's will and God's wish. But that's not the case. From his end, he sinned to harm another human being is a terrible sin. It's a worse sin than, than a sin between man and God. Because when you, when you sin between man and man, it's a double sin. When you hurt a human being, you've, that's a sin against God, because God tells you don't hurt another human being. And it's a sin against man. So much so, Yom Kippur can't forgive you. Yom Kippur, all the holiness of Yom Kippur and all the fasting in the world cannot atone for the sins between man and man, and man until you obtain forgiveness, their forgiveness, a heartfelt, genuine, sincere forgiveness from the person you've harmed. So it's a much worse sin. So the person, it's a sin. So, so how do you reconcile it? Here you're telling me that God wanted me to get hurt. God wanted me to be in pain. God wanted me to be insulted or to be slighted. This is the divine wish. Nothing in this world happens without Hashem. And yet you're telling me that a person is a sinner and a terrible sinner and, and, and he the worst sinner and he has to do tshuva and he has to repent. Why? If he's doing God's wish, maybe I should thank him, congratulate him. Maybe he's doing a mitzvah, he's fulfilling God's wish. He's God's agent. True, it is a person possessed of free choice that is cursing him or striking him or causing damage to his property and therefore guilty according to the laws of man and the laws of heaven, for his evil choice. The perpetrator, for his part, cannot plead innocence on the grounds that he is merely an instrument in the hands of divine providence. Why is he hitting you? Why is he harming you? He's not doing it to fulfill a divine mission, to do a mitzvah. He's doing it because he's an evil person. He's a horrible human being. He's a horrible character, inconsiderate, insensitive, cruel, mean, violates the code of Jewish law, violates Hashem's wish, violates the mitzvah. The Torah says clearly you have to be kind and nice and compassionate and loving. And he violated, chooses to violate. No one is forcing him. No one is imposing upon him. He chose to sin, to act immoral. To sin against man who's created in the image of God, it's immoral. 
how could you be cruel? If you're a godly person, you have to emulate God. You have to be kind, and you have to be compassionate, and you have to be loving and considerate. So this person who went ahead and lifted his hand against another, or harmed, or slighted, insulted, you're violating, the, you're violating Hashem's wish. He made a terrible choice, an immoral choice. And he has to repent, and he has to atone for that sin. You know, no one asked him to volunteer for this mission. It's two separate things. There is between you and God. You and God. God wanted you to be hurt or to be slighted, whatever. And then to pick that person to do it. God God has many messengers. He never asked this person to volunteer for the job. As a matter of fact, he told him not to do it. He says, told him clearly in Torah, don't lift a finger, don't lift a pinky. You have to be kind and compassionate. You're not allowed to be cruel. And, 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 and. So he, Hashem says, I don't want you to be my messenger. The harm and damage that was decreed in heaven against you, God has many messengers to accomplish that. It, doesn't have, it could be through animals, it could be through other things. It doesn't have to happen this way. Now, the fact that you chose to be, to vol- you volunteered for this mission. You didn't volunteer for a holy mission. You chose because you're evil. You chose to act immorally. And for that you have to pay. And for that you have to, you have to atone for. But unless it was decreed in heaven that I should be hurt or damaged or insulted, no human being on earth, if it, was decre- if it wasn't decreed in heaven that this should happen to me, no human being, Hashem would never allow that person. He would not allow that person to harm me. The fact that Hashem allowed it to happen, it means that it was already decreed in heaven that I have to experience this negative experience. This way, the other way, a third way, a fourth way, Hashem has many, many ways. So it was already decreed that I have to, something negative is going to happen to me. That's why. Why am I getting angry at Him? Unless it was decreed, it's between Hashem, me and Hashem. He has nothing to do with this. He has to do Teshuvah, on the other hand. Because he acted immorally. He, he did it out of, out of, he chose. No one asked him to volunteer. Hashem never sent him on this mission. Hashem actually explicitly told him, stay away. Don't get involved. You're not allowed to. It's not for you. You have to be kind and considerate and compassionate and sensitive and good. And you acted in a terrible way. You acted horribly. What kind of human being are you? What kind of person are you? You have to do Teshuvah. So it's two separate things. He has his, his, uh, his uh, calculation he has with Hashem, and you have your calculation with Hashem. Everything is Hashem. It's not, it's not him. It's not. So I have no reason to get angry at him. Yes, he's evil, and he chose evil, and he has to pay for that, but that's between him and God. Nothing to do with me. Nevertheless, regardless of the person harm, this incident was already decreed in heaven, and Hashem has many agents through whom he can act. Even if the offending party had chosen otherwise, the incident would have befallen the victim in any case. Exactly. This would have happened to me anyway. Either way, this way, the other way. If Hashem was decreed in heaven, this is going to happen to me, it's going to happen. If not through him, someone else. So why am I getting angry at him? He did this to me. Hashem did this to me. And it's a wake-up call. I'm getting angry at Hashem. Hashem, Hashem. It's a wake-up call. So it has nothing to do with him. He is an incidental player in this whole thing when it comes to my own personal damage and hurt. 
Now, that has, doesn't, that doesn't exonerate him. That doesn't lessen or minimize his sin. The fact that he carried out God's divine wish and will and this heavenly decree doesn't diminish his sin. He is still a horrible person and he still has to do tshuva for this terrible sin of being insensitive, cruel, inhumane, violating Hashem's wish. Hashem told him explicitly, don't volunteer for this. I'm not asking you. I'm, I'm not allowing you to do this. And he went ahead and did this. He has to do teshuvah. So it's many dimensions happening simultaneously. It's very hard for a square person to wrap your brain around this idea that on one hand, whatever is happening is divine wish, even though it's a negative. The person who's doing it is doing something, acting immoral and doing something negative and terrible. And yet, why should I get angry? I don't understand why I have to limp it to. Okay. They're separate ideas. The fact that Hashem wants to give you a wake-up call and you're getting angry at a person who, through his freedom of choice, has harmed you or seemingly harmed you, are two different things. Meaning that I should Meaning be able to get I angry? I could get angry. Why couldn't I get angry? Why well, should I get angry? angry? Oh. But why, but why? if people didn't get angry, why do you have the two other mitzvah of not taking revenge and, um, and, and carrying a grudge? You have two other mitzvahs, right? That, that could be a result of you getting angry. Not everybody has that vision. No, you can have that vision. You can still understand that Hashem is giving you a wake-up call. That's it. And it's, and, it's, and, and it's divine providence. You can still have that understanding and still have this animosity to the person that is the agent. No, because you're, you're, not, told, you're not getting angry like, like Stephen says. You're not getting angry like Moshe got angry because when a prophet sees the Jewish people are misbehaving, you get angry. That's not the reason you're getting angry if you're honest with yourself. And the, re- and the proof is... If you see someone doing harm to someone else, you don't, you're not getting angry the same way as you're getting angry at the person who will harm me. So the reason you're getting angry at him is not because you see a Jew acting immoral. When I see a Jew acting immoral, I lose, I'm a prophet and I'm a thundering prophet and I get angry and I lose my temper. If that was the case, if I would see someone in the street harming another person, I would get angry and I would stop in the street and I would start thundering, how could you act immorally, you have to behave... But when it hurts, when there's two people involved, I'm not involved, I don't get involved, I'm not, it doesn't excite me. I get excited when the person hurts me. So it's not, I'm not getting angry because he acted immoral, because how can a Jew act immoral? I'm getting angry because you hurt me. That's the proof. If I was getting angry because I see a Jew acting immoral, I have to get angry. So then any Jew is acting immoral, I should get angry, but I don't get angry when every Jew acts immoral. Only when it happens to be me. So it, honestly, that means I'm angry because he hurt me. So I'm angry at him. I agree with that. That's, that's exactly what I meant to say. Why shouldn't I get angry if he hurt me? Because I'm getting angry at him because he hurt me. He hurt me. He hurt me? He but didn't hurt bring me. bring this on to yourself? He has no power to hurt me. But you said that anybody could be Hashem's messenger. He chose to be the messenger. So why can't I be angry at him for, being, for choosing no, to be the no. messenger? I'm angry at him because he, I'm angry that he hurt me. I attribute my hurt to him. If he didn't, if he did not curse me out, or if he didn't harm me, this harm wouldn't happen to me. So I'm angry at him. But that's not true. Hashem has many messengers. It would have happened to me anyway. I'm upset because of what happened. Right. How dear, how dear I was insulted. But you could also understand that it's a, that it's, that it's divine providence, and still, 
and still be angry at the person. <laughs> what? How? <laughs> How? How? The point, the How? point, the point <laughs> is, you have to be a redhead to understand. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that you bring on your own service. Okay, we know that for a fact. The fact that like this particular person does something to me is indirectly involved with the fact that I've done something to me too. So Hashem is creating this situation because he has many Asians, okay? But at the same time, if I become self-righteous, which is a natural state of being, and someone hurts me, I'm not going to look to like, just like, why did he hurt me? I'm going to look to hurt him. And this is a natural state of being. What you What is being suggested here is a total divorcement from all kinds of um, social interaction, all kinds of things where, which we were talking about, you co- you focus on the 248, you haven't got time to do any of the 315, all right? That way you live a totally separate life and you're not involved in the world. Well, oh no, no, this, well, well, firstly, maybe this will explain why Torah says don't take, not only don't take revenge, Right. But don't even bear a grudge. How could you not bear a grudge? Because you don't let yourself get into situations. He was, he was so cruel. He was so cruel to me. So yes, I'm not going to take revenge. I'm going to act kindly to you, even though you don't deserve it. And you when he's me. not looking, I'm going to hurt him. And yet, and, yet, and yet, not only that, Tony says, you're not allowed to even bear a grudge. That's not, again, an actual, that, that's not uh, an actual uh, nature, uh, natural way to be. That's a limitation on that. No, it's part. not a limitation. Come on. What, uh, I'm telling you from what I know, okay. and you're telling me from what you know. Well, so therefore, the whole thing comes down to like acknowledging the well, source the question of is like divine this. intervention. The question is a few questions. Firstly, this, if this is the case, it should also work in the reverse. If someone does you a favor, yeah, maybe according to this logic, why should I thank him? <laughs> he did me the favor. Unless it was decreed in heaven, this favor should happen. God did me this favor. He doesn't exist. I don't exist. It's not about him. He's no. He's that. He did the favor. That's between him and God. But the fact that the favor happened to me, that's between me and God. Yet, yeah, it's a mitzvah in the Torah. You have to thank him and be grateful and be thankful. According to this logic, it should no, <laughs> work no, the reverse no, no, also. He did a favor to time. me. So what's the difference? What's the logic? What's the difference? It's a good question. Hasid has asked this question. Because what's the even further, because it's probably for his own self-interest that he was good to you. Okay. okay. So why? So how much more so? And yet you have to be thankful, and you have to be grateful, and yeah. So, so Hasid explains that firstly, it's two things. Firstly, I mean, you know, this is again, it's a square person. It's very hard. These concepts to. Integrate because it's like it's like opposites simultaneously. It's paradoxical. So, firstly, it's like this. Firstly, when you see a Jew acting morally, courageously, heroically, and doing the right thing, any Jew, even if it's not to yourself, you see two one Jew acting to another Jew and acting kindly and like you as a Jew, you're very proud of him and you want to uh, love your fellow Jew like yourself. You want to encourage him and thank you, thank you when you see a Jew's living up to the Torah. The Torah says you should be a mensch. The Torah says you should be sensitive. You should be kind. You should be giving and compassionate, just like Hashem is loving and kind and giving and compassionate. When you see a Jew following the Torah, and between man and man as a mensch, and you should be grateful and thankful. So I'm happy to see a Jew doing the right thing, even though, yes, you're right. 
I don't attribute the kindness to you. The kindness comes from Hashem. But nevertheless, you volunteered for the job. You stepped up to the plate. You lived up to your moral obligation, which is what the Torah expects of you. I'm grateful, I'm thankful, and I'm happy to see a Jew who's living up to things. That's one, on one level, one dimension. Another dimension is, it's much more personal. Because that Jew's choice actually enhances the kindness. Because when a Jew chooses to look at you favorably and to act kindly, he can add to the blessing. Even if it was decreed in heaven that you should be blessed, something good should happen to you. But when a person with a good eye, a good nature, looks at everyone with the right eye positively, when you put that into the mix, it amplifies the blessing. He adds to the divine blessing. When a good person is thrown into the mix, he facilitates things. Things He changes the mix. It's dynamic. So the blessing would come anyway. It was already decreed in heaven that you're going to have a blessing. One way or the other, the blessing is going to happen. But when a good person is thrown into the mix with a kind heart and a good eye and a positive energy, it fast-forwards, it facilitates, it increases, it enhances, it amplifies it. So I thank him for the extra... Actually, that's what the Talmud says. The chef cooks. And who gets the tip? The waiter. <laughs> the chef is in the kitchen. <laughs> he doesn't see a penny. The waiter is the one who gets all the thank yous. Because he's the one who's pouring it. He's the one who's transmitting it. He's... So when the waiter is good, you know, it can add to the blessing. You know, maybe the chef will throw in something a little extra and... So, so you, thank, you thank the waiter. So yes, he's just the transmitter. He's just the waiter, the delivery. He chose to be the delivery. Delivery would have happened anyway, but the fact that his kindness and his goodness enhances and amplifies. And that's why you thank him. Now, we find a question in this whole concept when it comes to the negative thing. The Rechaim HaKadosh explains why did Judah, when they sold Joseph into slavery, why did Judah advise them, Yehuda advised them, to, uh, when they wanted to kill Joseph. Sorry, first they wanted to kill Joseph. They threw they wanted to kill him. So he advised him, don't kill him. The blood should not be in our hands. Instead, let's throw him into a pit of snakes. Deadly snakes. Poisonous. According to Jewish law, when you throw someone, someone falls into a pit of deadly snakes, his wife can marry. I mean, you don't have to see him dead. You know he's dead. I mean, it's finished. A pit of snakes... You're not getting out alive. So what's the difference if they take a knife and butcher him and kill him? Or they throw him into a pit of snakes? Why is that better? It's not, it's not better. They're still murderers. It's a, it's a murder. What's the difference? What? It's so, so it's, what? It's wrong. It's indirect. Oh. No, but halachically, halachically that, would, that, that would be considered, that's almost like direct, that that would be considered murder. But, but the, that may be even considered a direct uh, murder. But the question here is, uh, a pit of snakes may even be considered uh, directly murder. The question, what they thought is, that Chaim HaKadosh explains, Chaim Benetta, Baal Shem Tov's peer, lived in Israel, they never met, but he explains that they, that Judah's thinking was as follows. He says, we have freedom of choice. Animals don't have freedom of choice. So better, let's throw him deadly poison snakes. But then, if he has a merit... Maybe he'll be saved. But if he's up against us, we have freedom of choice. 
if he falls into our hands, he's not getting out alive. <laughs> you're telling me there's a distinction between the two. Oh, that's the Rechayim HaKadosh explained. That's why they threw him into the pit, and indeed his life was saved. And then, then they hauled him out, and they sold him to slavery. But according to the Alter Rebbe, says in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe just says, wait a minute, you just said that a person doesn't have freedom of choice. You don't have freedom of choice to harm another person. So what was Judas thinking? Would we have freedom of choice? No, you don't have freedom of choice. If they would have plunged a knife into Joseph, what that means is that Hashem wanted him dead. If Hashem didn't want him dead, you can conspire and plot and scheme from today till tomorrow. Nothing is going to happen, according to this logic. But you can ask the question, same question. According to Jewish law, you're not allowed to place yourself in danger. According to this logic, why not? I have nothing to be afraid of. If it's basher, I'm meant to be harmed, I'll be harmed no matter what. I could be walking down the street in, in New York City and you, have, you hear crazy stories and things happen. Because it was Joseph's fault. He was the one that, that the brothers were... Right. But if, if it's not basher, I should be harmed. If it's not decreed in heaven that I should be harmed, no one in the universe has the freedom of choice or the power to hurt me, to lay a finger on me. So I have nothing to be afraid of. I should, I should be careless. I can walk... I should walk down <laughs> in a dangerous neighborhood, middle of the night, nothing, nothing to worry, according to this logic. But no, the Torah says you're not allowed to put yourself in danger. So much so, when God told Shmuel to anoint King David, he had to, he had to revert to subterfuge, because he was in danger of Shaul. Hashem is sending him on a mission, a divine mission, a mitzvah, go anoint King David. And he says he had to create subterfuge because he was in danger. If Shaul would find out, he would kill Shmuel the prophet. He's on a divine mission, you're protected. But by law, you're not allowed to place yourself in danger, even if you're doing a mitzvah. Why? If it wasn't decreed in heaven that anything could happen to Shmuel, no one could harm me, no one could touch me, according to this logic. That's right. And that's why I'm not allowed to get angry at anyone. Because if anything happens to me, it's only because Hashem wanted it. So what's the, what's, the, what's the explanation? It says a person is judged every day, and the truth is, is every minute. We're constantly judged. Now, when you place yourself in danger, at that moment when you're judged, a person needs a tremendous merit to be able to overcome an, a, a natural danger. Why should Hashem make a miracle for you? Why do you deserve a miracle? God created the world in a natural way. God only performs extraordinary miracles for extraordinary circumstances for extraordinary people. So suddenly, when you place yourself in danger, when you're in a dangerous situation, there's a huge question mark over you. Now you're being judged and evaluated. You put it under the microscope, and in heaven they say, okay, he's a nice enough fellow, decent enough guy. But to deserve such a miracle? No way. So placing yourself in danger you're likely to tilt the heavenly decision against. So falling into the hands of the brothers, those who have freedom of choice, it's like being in a place of danger, being, putting yourself in the hands. To, to free, yes, Hashem could do anything, but to free Joseph from the hands of those who have freedom of choice, Joseph would need an extraordinary merit Hashem would have to make an extraordinary miracle to free him from the clutches of his brothers who had freedom of choice.
it would take like a tremendous miracle. And the question is, would Joseph merit such a miracle? If he's thrown to the pit of snakes, you don't need such a, the same type of miracle. You would need a greater miracle to be freed from the clutches of those who have freedom of choice than to free from the poisonous, deadly snakes. But if the poisonous snakes is like a guaranteed death sentence, I don't understand. Well, because it wasn't decreed in heaven, it was decreed in heaven that he should not, he should not be hurt. But, he's, but they said, for Joseph's sake, it's better for him, if he has a choice, to fall into the hands of deadly snakes or to fall into the hands of his fellow Jews who have freedom of choice. It would take a bigger miracle to save him from the hands of his fellow Jews than it would be from the deadly snakes. But he, but he did have the merit. As we know, at the end of the... Yeah, but they didn't know that. So Judah... That. Yeah, but Judah okay. didn't know. Judah didn't know. So Judah said, the, the wise thing to do is, let's throw him into the pit of snakes. And then, listen, if he has a merit, that's fine. It's like a Hashem's choice. But, but if we kill him, it could be that even if he would have been saved from the pit of snakes, it could be that his merit is not big enough that he would be saved from us. He's in greater danger. And therefore, if he's in greater danger, then at that moment he's being judged. And that moment, maybe he won't have the merit to be saved from us. And that's why, yes, we will kill him because that's what Hashem wants because he was in a place of danger. He was in a dangerous situation. And he didn't have the merit to be saved from such a dangerous, a dangerous situation. So when you have freedom of choice, it does add to the mix. So the question remains, okay, but why shouldn't they get angry at that person? When that person has freedom of choice and he chose to harm me, maybe his free, the fact that he has freedom of choice adds to the mix and therefore it was judged in heaven that this harsh thing should happen to me because a person who has freedom of choice is attacking me, accusing me, is angry at me, is trying to hurt me, is accusing me in heaven, and therefore he's the cause why it was decreed in heaven that, I sh- that this negative thing should happen to me because of his negative choice. So he had some influence, on it. so therefore he, maybe he is the cause, that maybe that is a reason to be angry. And yet we find by Joseph Joseph was not angry at the brothers. He wasn't angry at the brothers. And he says, you didn't do anything. You did anything to me. Hashem did it. You have no power to hurt me. You don't have the power to lift a pinky on me, a finger on me. Anything that happened is directly from Hashem. And look, it was all a blessing. It was all Hashem wanted this to happen. It was all for a reason. It was all divine. It was all good at the end. He never doubted for a moment that it was all divine. He was never angry at his brothers. He says, you hurt me? You had the power to hurt me? You had the power to harm me? You don't have any power. Hashem runs this world. This is the ultimate faith. Joseph was the ultimate faith. How do you see Joseph was in the whole Torah? Joseph was the ultimate role model for faith in Hashem. How do you see that? The fact that Joseph didn't get angry at his brothers. That's why Joseph is so impressive. More so than all the other biblical characters. That's why the Torah spends so much time in Joseph, more so than any, any other character in the book of Genesis. 
Because where do you see his faith? Not only that he was tempted by Potiphar's wife and he was faithful, but even more impressive, his faith is expressed in how he treated his brothers. He wasn't angry at his brothers. And he treated them kindly. And he, because he never, he, never, he never bared a grudge against them. He wasn't angry at them. Based on this concept that he's explaining here. I should get angry at you. You have the power to hurt me. You have the power to lay a finger on me. It's all Hashem. You don't have any, that power. I have another question. But this was years after, and this was after he became king, and this was when he could see how the whole thing ended. When you get angry at somebody, it's in that split second when he arms you. But apparently Joseph wasn't angry from there on. This faith Joseph had all along, this faith carried him for all those years, the 13 years, till, till the good days. And, and yet when there was a worldwide hunger, he didn't seek them out. There's a reason for that. What was that? He didn't, he didn't want Jacob. Well, firstly, because he thought to himself, Hashem, why didn't Hashem reveal to Yaakov? Yaakov was a prophet. Yaakov was the spiritual leader of the world. Hashem didn't reveal anything to Yaakov. Isaac didn't reveal. Isaac knew. He didn't reveal for the same reason. Because Hashem didn't want them to reveal. Hashem you know, kept it a secret. Hashem had his divine plan. So out of respect for Hashem's plan, Isaac saw his son mourning. And he didn't say a word. He knew, he knew by divine providence what happened. And he didn't with divine inspiration. But Hashem didn't want Yaakov to know. And Yosef understood the same thing. Hashem is speaking to Yaakov. Yaakov is his, is his chief uh, top, uh, top advisor. And he doesn't say a word to him. So obviously Hashem is respecting the brothers' pact that they made amongst themselves. And nobody should reveal this to Yaakov until the time comes. So he respected it. Then later on when he saw that the time came, the right time, that's when also he did not want, even after he revealed himself, he avoided Yaakov. He was afraid, terrified. Yaakov was going to ask him what really happened. He never told Yaakov what happened. Because he was afraid that Yaakov would curse the brothers and would write them out of the Jewish people. That would be the end of them. So out of love and respect for his brothers, he never, he, he avoided Yaakov. He was afraid of that question. Yosef, what really happened? <laughs> he, he didn't want to tell them. He didn't want to hurt the brothers. This is not something that starts later. A person who bears a grudge, a person who is angry, on the contrary, when he becomes king, now he has the power to really take revenge. And Yosef, from day one, he, was, he had that faith. This is the faith that, that preserved him. That he was able to persevere in such darkness all alone. And that faith kept him getting stronger and stronger with time. So he had that faith all along. He was never angry. That's what he told him. His whole philosophy is, you hurt me? Are you kidding me? You have the power to hurt me? Who are you? You don't exist. I don't exist. All there is is Hashem. Yosef was such powerful faith. There's no more greater example in the Torah of living faith than Joseph. That's why Joseph is such a role model for us. He's such a hero. He's so heroic. In a way, he's even more impressive than the patriarchs because he took the faith of the patriarchs and he lived it to the extreme, to the ultimate. He took the faith of God to the ultimate conclusion. What's the test that I truly believe and I have faith? It's how I treat other people. One thing, if I pray and I study and I meditate and I'm dancing with the angels, and, but with people, people I don't get along with. <laughs> people I can't stand, people I hate, people I'm angry with. I'm angry at this one, I'm angry at the other one, I'm critical of this one. And I, If you truly have faith, God works through people. 
if you truly have faith, the test is how you treat people. And not people who are kind to you, people who make you angry. <laughs> if you have faith, like Joseph, you don't get angry. That's why the Talmud says, whoever gets angry and bears a grudge, which is anger, it's idolatry. He did this to me. He has the power. It has nothing to do with it. Hashem. It's between me and God. It's a wake-up call. I'll take it up with God. It's, I know Hashem is giving me a message. What's, what's it have to do with Him? And what happened to me anyway? The fact that He acted immorally and He chose to act immorally. And Hashem told Him explicitly, don't be my messenger. I don't allow you to be my messenger. I forbid you to be my messenger. You're not allowed to be the one to carry out this. I'm commanding you to be kind and to be good and to be generous. And, and you disobeyed. You didn't do me any favors. Hashem said, you're not doing me any favors. I can take care of business. I'm, not, I'm telling you, don't be my messenger. I have other messengers for this. Not you. And you violated it. You acted immorally. And for that, he has to be punished. But the question remains, well, it, gets, it gets more interesting. This is not simple. This is, the question remains, why if a person hurt me and harm me, why, do, why does he have to ask me for forgiveness? <laughs> why does he have to ask me for forgiveness? I'm Yom Kippur. He is not forgiven. Until he asks forgiveness. Sins with him, man and man, you have to ask forgiveness. Why? According to the way he's explaining it over here, it has nothing to do with man and man. Everything is between man and God. If something negative happens to me, it's between me and God. The fact that he acted immorally and Hashem expressly told him, don't volunteer for this mission, I forbid you from volunteering for this mission, you're not allowed to act uh, unkindly to another person, and you went ahead and chose to violate my express wish, and you acted immorally, you, that person who harmed another person, he has to ask forgiveness. But that's, again, between him and God. I was going to get hurt anyway. The fact that he chose immorally and he acted unkindly, again, that's, uh, that's between him and God. So what's the connection between him and me? Why, is it, do, why does he have to ask me for forgiveness and I have to forgive him? And he's not forgiven until I forgive him. Well, he can ask the same question person steals $100. Why does the Torah say you have to pay back the $100? Maybe you can ask the same question. <laughs> Obviously, if, 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 I, if $100 was taken away from me, it's because Hashem wanted me to lose the $100. So if this is what Hashem wants, it has nothing to do with Him. I was going to lose the $100 anyway, whether He stole it or not. The fact that he acted immorally and he volunteered and went against Hashem's express wish and stole the money. Again, that's between him and God. So maybe if Hashem wants him to pay back, let him pay a yeshiva, let him give $100 a donation to his favorite charity. What does it have to do with me? If Hashem wants me to lose the $100, maybe it should remain lost. Why, should he, why does he have an obligation to return me? And that's even more so, the Torah says... The Torah says, actually, you have to pay. In the case of theft, you have to pay double. It's not enough to pay the $100. If you steal 100 you have to pay 200 Why 200 Why? Because 
if you're paying back the hundred dollars, all you're doing is you're giving back money that you never lost, that never belonged to you in the first place. You're just giving back your profit. <laughs> but you stole a hundred dollars of principal from the other person. You're giving back the money that never belonged to you in the first place. Hashem says, measure for measure. You took $100 out of someone else's pocket. I'm going to take $100 out of your pocket. But the Torah says, who gets the extra $100? The one whose money was stolen gets the extra 100 Right? That's right. It's not ribbons. He gets the extra 100 He gets the extra 100 Why? He sinned. That's between him and God. You know, God wants to punish him. You caused another Jew to lose $100. You should also lose $100. So we're going to dig into your pocket. Not only are you going to give back the 100 but we're going to dig into your pocket and you're going to lose $100. That's your penalty. Or, in, in a case where a person swears and denies that he owes money, let's say you owe you're a worker, someone works for you and comes time to sell, it comes time to, it comes payday, and you swear that you never, you never, you don't owe him any money, and then you admit the, the, the sin, what happens? You have to pay back 25% of the principal, a fifth. Let's say it's $100, you have to pay $125. When you add the 25, it's like a fifth, but 25, a quarter of the, of the, of the principal. Again, why? Because... Commentaries say, because this time, the person, the principal, the owner, could have invested the money. And he would have made money. So it's not enough just to give him back the principal. You also have to make up for all the lost opportunity. He could have invested it in the meanwhile in business, and, and he could have made money. Could have earned, earned 25%. You took that away from him. You deprived him of that. Therefore, you have to pay back, make up for all the lost time. And the same idea is forgiveness. It's not enough. When you hurt someone, it's not enough just to restitution. It's not enough even to pay back the $100, even to pay back the $200, or pay back the $125. But you have to ask forgiveness. You have to make up all the hurt feelings, the insult, the pain, you have to alleviate all that pain. You have to make up for it. You have to apologize. And you have to sincerely heartfelt apology and really make up for all the negative feelings, for the harm that you inflicted, the pain that you inflicted, the psychological harm. Not just the pain, the financial damage that you've done. You also have to make up for all the psychological damage that you've done. All the hard feelings that you caused. You have to make up for it and ask forgiveness and obtain forgiveness. The question is why? If it was decreed in heaven that I should lose money and whether that person stole it from me or not, I would have lost it anyway. I wouldn't have made money of that $100. I would have lost it. What are you telling me he has to make up for it? Because all that lost opportunity, obviously if he stole that money from me, that means in, in heaven it was decreed I was going to lose that money. So I wouldn't have had that $100 to invest in anyway. So why, why does he have to pay it? And why does he have to make up for it uh, psychologically by asking apologies and receiving... I, sh- I was going to get hurt and insulted anyway. So firstly, technically, <laughs> how do we know what Hashem wants? We only know after the fact. 
If someone tells you, am I allowed to punch this person? Obviously, Hashem wanted that person to get punched. If it wasn't me, he would bang his head in the wall. He would, he would get that punch one way or the other. So it's a simple resolution. Let me do it, and then I'll know this is what Hashem wants. It doesn't work that way. It's only after the fact. Before the fact, how do I know this is what Hashem wants? I know Hashem doesn't want. Hashem wants me to be kind and generous. Hashem doesn't want that person to be hard. So the same thing is after the fact. After I already punched. But if you have a way to make up for it, by befriending him and obtaining his apology and sincerely and heartfelt asking his apology and, and trying to make up the psychological damage. And if I have a way of making up the damage of paying him back, not only the principal, but paying him back double and paying him back the, 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 five, the, five percent, the, uh, uh, the fifth on top of it, instead of 100, giving him 125. So, maybe, so this is what Hashem wants. Yes, Hashem wanted him to be deprived of the money and Hashem wanted him to undergo that painful and it would have happened one way or the other. But now that I have an opportunity of restitution, I have an opportunity to make it up. So this is what Hashem wants of me to do now. So I have to completely make up for it. Yes, it was a temporary loss and he had to go through this painful thing and he would have gone through it one way or the other. But how do I know that Hashem wants him to continue this loss and to continue with this psychological damage and, and hurt and pain? If I have a way of making it up, that's what Hashem wants. Make up for it and make up for it and obliterate it completely. Wipe it out by befriending him and asking forgiveness and making up for all the losses and making up for all the potential loss. And that's number one. And, and more importantly, you know, faith can never become an excuse being inhumane. You can't hide behind your faith. There's certain basic mentalkeit, fundamental principles. It says if the Torah was not given, we would learn many things from animals. There's kindness that we can learn from animals. There's, Hashem is kind. Hashem is good. Hashem wants us to be kind and to be good. The faith and the giving of the Torah only took it to the next level. But it's not a substitute and it's not a... You can't hide behind your faith. You can't hide behind religion to be inhumane. Well, everything is God, so therefore people don't exist. You don't exist, I don't exist. So you're nobody, I'm nobody, so it's, yeah, I have no connection to you. I'm going to sit and worship God and I'm going to be completely insensitive based on this faith. You don't exist, I don't exist, nothing exists. So what's the point of being considerate? Who am I being considerate to? If you don't exist, I don't have to be considerate, Right? And if, if, I'm, if I'm inconsiderate, anyway, God wanted you to, to, to experience this pain. And so. so suddenly the faith is becoming an excuse of being a horrible human being, of being, not being a mensch, being inhumane and sensitive. The Torah, first and foremost, you have to be a mensch. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You have to be a, a super mensch. You have to be kind, considerate, sensitive, compassionate, good, loving, giving. The faith enhances and amplifies that a thousandfold. But don't use your faith as an excuse for, being, for, for not being a mensch. So if I hurt another person, I lifted a finger against another person, I insulted another person, I have to do everything in my power to make up for it, to restore the goodwill, to, to, to do the, undo the psychological damage and the financial damage and to make up all the lost opportunities. That's my primary responsibility. So my faith has to motivate me, has to be the drive to become more humane and a bigger mensch, not to become 
less humane and hide behind my faith. That's why the Zohar says, because there are three loves, there are three things that are connected. The love of Jews, the love of Torah, the love of God. In that order, why does he start out with the love? The Rebbe spoke about the, when he became accepted the leadership, his first opening remarks. Why does it say the love of Jew and then the love of Torah, the love of God? It should have been the reverse order. First you love God, then you love his Torah, and last, then you love the Jew. Why does he start love your fellow Jew? Love of Torah and love of God. And the three are bound up together, or interlinked, interconnected. It's because a Jew can't hide behind religion to beat up on, an, on another person. A person who hides behind religion to be cruel in the name of faith, in the name of religion, to be cruel and insensitive to his fellow Jew, to be cruel and sensitive to another person. This is the acid test. How do I know that you truly love Hashem? You truly love Torah? The gateway is how you treat your fellow person. If you treat your fellow like a mensch, and you're kind and considerate and giving and sensitive and compassionate and good, if you're selfless and egoless, that you can love another person, that love will lead you to the love of Torah, and that love will lead you to the love of Hashem. But if a person claims that he loves Hashem, he's delusional. He loves himself, he doesn't love Hashem. And the proof is, the love is sterile. It doesn't lead you to the love of Torah, and if it does, it doesn't lead you to the love of your fellow Jew. You just become more impossible, more arrogant, more detached, more and more inhumane, then there's something wrong here. You're not connecting with the divine. This is not the faith. This is not holy. This holiness this is not the divine. This is not pure. This is not good. It's not real. So this is the acid test. The acid test is, are you a mensch? That's why there's no fanaticism in Judaism. You can't hide behind Judaism and religion to become a fanatic. You can't. Because this is the test. Hashem loves each and every one of us. So if, you, if you're truly connected with Hashem... You have to emulate Hashem. You have to be loving and kind and considerate and compassionate. So all this discussion of faith and, and this powerful faith, to the extent that you don't lose your temper because you have such faith in Hashem and you realize that anything that happens to me, He doesn't have the power. I'm not empowering Him. I'm not turning Him into a divinity. It's coming directly from Hashem. And therefore, I'm not going to get angry at anyone. I'm not going to lose my temper at anyone. It's between me, it's between me and Hashem. But this faith is not a reason to become divorced from other human beings and disconnected from other human beings. They're nothing. They're nobody. You know the famous story with the Tzemach Tzedek, Third Lubavitch Rebbe. Um, the Hasidim would come for the holiday, travel from all over Russia. So one, one holiday, Shavuot, two friends and Hasidim live in different cities, come together. They spend the whole holiday of Shavuot with the Rebbe the end of the holiday, they were going to part ways and they, were, they weren't going to see each other for another year. So the friend says, listen, I, last time we met, I lend you a serious sum of money and uh, I really need that money. I mean, it wasn't my money to give. I just did you a favor, but I really need it now, you know. Please give me that money. I desperately need it. You promised. The friend says, I'm, sh- I'm surprised at you. We just spent the whole holiday. We heard the Rebbe speak Hasidic discourses. 
We've been studying Tanya and studying Hasidus. Didn't you hear anything the Rebbe said? The Rebbe said that I am nothing and you're nothing and the whole world is nothing. The money is nothing. What, what are you talking about? Forget about the nothing. There's no money. There's no you. There's no I. There's nothing. There's no money. <laughs> he, looked at, he looked at his friend. <laughs> he runs to the Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, you got to help me out here. I mean, this is incredible. I, mean, I don't know what to do. I mean, my family depends on this. I, I can't. So the Rebbe says, go tell your friend that if he doesn't come up with a nothing, ASAP, we're going to take the nothing, lie him down in the nothing, beat him with a few nothings, <laughs> and we'll see how quickly he comes up with that nothing. And all of a sudden, this Hasidic philosophy and this deep faith, there's nothing but God and nothing exists, and we're all completely nullified before God, and we're all completely lost within God, and all of a sudden this becomes an excuse of inhumanity, of not fulfilling your human obligation, of being cruel and insensitive. When religion becomes a mask and a thing to hide behind, to hide your own cruelty and your own selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption and your own evil and your own negativity and you're all, it's all packaged in the name of God in the name of God I'm going to beat up on my fellow Jew and I'm going to hurt my fellow Jew and harm my fellow Jew because faith no one exists, nothing exists I am nothing, you're nothing faith is only for me faith is that I don't exist Everything that we learn in the Tanya, how you deal with pain and suffering, you have to justify your own pain and suffering, you have to thank Hashem for your own pain and suffering, is all your own pain and suffering, not another Jew's pain and suffering. Could you imagine going to go to a funeral? Let's dance. Mazel tov! <laughs> we make a bracha. God forbid a tragedy happens, the worst tragedy, you make a bracha. You tear kriya, you make a bracha. You thank Hashem. The person who the tragedy happened to makes the bracha. God forbid anyone in the crowd should make a bracha. Everyone get up. Let's make a bracha. Thank you, Hashem, for taking away this life. Thank you, Hashem. Are you kidding? Anyone who makes that bracha. That's cruelty. That's evil. You have to mourn. You have to cry with the person. You have to be there for the person. Your heart has to be broken. You have to... The person himself has to make the bracha. It's all how I deal with my own pain and suffering. Faith is how I deal with my own. Something negative happens to me. Somebody hurt me. Somebody insulted me. My ego, myself. Here I have faith. It comes from Hashem. I'm not getting angry. Like Joseph. I'm not getting angry. It comes from Hashem. I'm not getting angry. What, are you kidding me? I'm turning him into a divinity. I'm worshipping him. I'm going to worship him as my God? No. He's nobody. I'm worshipping Hashem. But it's only when it comes to myself. Not when it comes to another human being. When it comes to another human being, I have to treat that person with such care, such sensitivity. Like Avram ran out of his tent to care for the three nomads who were idolaters, who worshipped Mother Earth. Geisha worshipped the dust of their own feet. The lowest of the low. And yet, Abraham went out of his way to accommodate them and to help them and to be kind to them. Joseph was accommodating to the idolaters, the ministers who put him into prison. And that's what caused this whole redemption. When it comes to another human being, it comes to another person, 
We have to be extremely kind, as the Baal said. They asked the Baal Everything in this world is divine. There is no other reality but God. Everything in this world is here to teach us a divine message. So they asked the Baal what's the divine message behind atheism? Obviously, if there's atheism in the world, there's a reason. God created it for a reason. What's the message? The Bashamta says, yes, there is a divine message. When a poor person comes knocking on your door, and he's starving and he's hungry, don't sit them down and start teaching them chassidahs, and teach them faith. At that moment, become an atheist. You are the only one in the world who can help them. You have to go, roll up your sleeves, give them a slice of bread, feed them, help them, take care of them. That's faith. It seems like a paradox, but that's faith. When it comes to me, absolute faith. When it comes to another person, I have to be there for them, I have to be a mensch, I have to be kind, compassionate, considerate, understanding. They have a tragedy, I have to cry, I don't have to justify it, I have to justify my own tragedies, but not, God forbid, another person's tragedy. You can't use religion and faith to hide behind, to be cruel. And that's why the Zohar puts love your fellow Jew before love of Torah, before love of Hashem. Because that's the gateway. That's how I know that you're really hitting it on the nail. That your faith is genuine. God works through other people. So it's a paradox. But God is paradox. Ultimate reality of paradox. And not everyone knows how to harmonize these two ideas. Absolute faith and yet absolute love and menschlichkeit and goodness and kindness at the same time. Not to get angry and yet be completely, not divorce myself, not getting angry by divorcing myself from everyone, from mankind. It's me and God and no one exists. That's not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is by connecting with everyone. Being kind to everyone. At the same time, not getting angry from them or Shagat. You can accomplish that. If you get that, then you get it. If you don't get this, you missed the point. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.